Hey everyone, and welcome to How to Be More Alive, a podcast about faith, poetry, and what it means to be human. Now I should probably start by saying that I originally planned for this podcast to come out a few weeks from now. And this first episode was actually going to be about something else. It was going to be about beginnings or setting out on a journey or new dawns or, you know, something more episode one-ish. I was going to ease myself into things, give you a gentle flavour of what to expect from this podcast. But then, a few days ago, a white police officer knelt on the neck of a black man so that he couldn't breathe properly. And despite George Floyd's cries for help, despite the pleas from onlookers, he kept his knee there for nine minutes, for several minutes after he became unresponsive. George Floyd died as a result of the actions of that police officer. And the deep tragedy beneath this deep tragedy is that there's nothing new about this. Right now there's all this horror and indignation rightly pouring out from across the world in response, but for the communities in the middle of it, this is not a shock. This is something that has been going on for generations. This is part of life. George Floyd's death is the latest in an ungodly, unfathomably, unbearably long list of black people to die at the hands of the authorities. So what does this have to do with you? What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with faith? What does this have to do with poetry? Everything and everything and everything and everything. One of the ways that I like to process things is by writing poetry. It's a kind of therapy for me, a way of getting my voice, my feelings, my ideas out into the world. I wrote the following poem in the wake of what I've just been talking about. And as you might imagine, it's got some anger and some frustration and some grief to it. So I'm going to read it for you now, and then we can dive into the places that this is coming from. This is called A Prophecy. You. Church, how you love to prophesy, how you love to encourage yourselves and inflate yourselves with the hot air of the so-called prophetic. You prophesy growth, you prophesy success, you prophesy your own revival. I prophesy this, God is not listening to you. The ears of heaven are not attuned to the boasts of those who ignore the cries of the oppressed. There will be no revival for a church that does not revive justice. 
There will be no revival for a church that remains silent. There will be no revival for a church looking only to its own interests. There will be no revival for a church that does not fling itself in rage against racism, against poverty, against homophobia and misogyny, against all the injustices that stain this world. And if the church has to give its own life for the sake of this, so be it. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So why did I call this a prophecy? What is this referring to? The last two lines of the poem, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, are from an ancient poetic tradition from the Middle East. A tradition that's a convergence of justice with poetry, liberation with language. And it's a tradition that I believe can speak powerfully into the issues of injustice that we're facing today. I'll get to those specific lines in a bit, but for now, I want to take a broader look at this tradition. Roughly two and a half thousand years ago, the area that is now Israel and Palestine was two kingdoms known as Israel and Judah. These kingdoms had emerged from the Hebrew peoples, a group who started off as nomadic shepherds. Then they were slaves in Egypt. Then they were freed. Then they were spent a few decades wandering around the wilderness. Then they eventually settled in one place, but that started this long and horrific cycle of violence with the people ruled by warlords and conflict between different tribes until eventually King David came along, as in David and Goliath, who unified the people and established a relatively peaceful reign. It didn't last too long. Things went a bit pear-shaped again when David's son Solomon was king. You see, Solomon was extremely powerful and wealthy, and we kind of know what happens when that happens. Solomon abused his power and wealth and built a temple made of gold, and he built it using slave labor. The people who were once slaves were now the enslavers. Naturally, things fell apart. The kingdom was divided in two, Israel in the north, and Judah in the south. This setup lasted for a couple of hundred years with things getting more and more corrupt, with a ruling class made up of the king and the religious and military elite. The hoarding of wealth, gross inequality, sycophantic priests telling the kings that they were favored by God, lavish religious ceremonies and feasts being held while the cries of the poor and marginalized were ignored. You don't have to look too far to see the parallels with our society today. This is a people who were liberated from oppression. This is a people in whose founding mythology they were told by the Creator that they were to be a blessing to other nations. And here they were, doing the opposite. But it wasn't without resistance. A group of people that we now refer to as the Hebrew prophets began to operate in the region. 
You might be familiar with some of the names. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, Amos, Micah. And they began to speak up and call out the injustice that they were seeing. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word prophet or prophecy? Today, we tend to think of a prophet as someone who maybe predicts the future. But that's not really what these people were about. That's not really what the prophetic is about. The main role, the main purpose of these prophets was to speak truth to power. If you want to put it in spiritual language, they were people who were said to speak the will of the divine, the will of God. What does that mean? Well, in the Hebrew scriptures, we get an interesting picture of who or what they interpreted God, interpreted the divine to be. For this ancient people, central to their understanding of God, central to their ideas about the deepest reality of being, was justice. And that makes a lot of sense for a people who had been liberated from slavery. In one of the Psalms, which is this group of songs written probably around the time I've been talking about, you find this description. The divine upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The divine sets prisoners free, gives sight to the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down and watches over the foreigner. The problem was that the ruling classes, the religious institutions had forgotten this. They had forgotten the songs of a God who liberates and lifts up. They had forgotten that at the heartbeat of the divine is justice and compassion. The prophets rose up to remind them. And this was quite a big contrast to the theological status quo in the ancient world. Gods and stories about gods tended to be violent and oppressive. Think about the gods of ancient Egypt and Babylon and Greece, and they were pretty gruesome, and there was zero interest in helping the poor, the hungry, the foreigner. Gods did the oppressing, not the liberating. And yes, there is some of that in Hebrew scripture as well. It is of that era. But there is also this new idea emerging, this different kind of divinity, this different way of seeing and thinking about reality. And one of the most fascinating things is that it was happening in different places around the world at the same time. Across the same period of a few hundred years, you had the Hebrew prophets in Israel and Judah, you had Socrates in Greece, you had Gautama Buddha in Nepal and India, and Confucius in China, all beginning to explore this new ground of justice. All of them rising up at the same period in history. The religious scholar Karen Armstrong calls it the Great Transformation. It's almost as if there was a universal jump in human consciousness at that time. Or you might say there was a movement of spirit, a movement towards a more 
liberating, inclusive and just view of humanity and the universe. How desperately we need a movement like this today. How desperately we needed it decades ago. So how did the prophets communicate their message? Well, they did it through poetry. Much of what they said and wrote is recorded in verse, not in prose, especially when they're said to be speaking the words of God. It's as if when it comes to the divine and justice, our normal ways of communicating are insufficient and we need something that speaks to the soul as much as to the head. There's an awesome contemporary poet and musician called Micah Bournes, and he has this slogan, fight evil with poetry. Well, that's exactly what the prophets were doing. Why poetry? Because poetry can have a weight to it that ordinary language can't. Poetry is the distillation of language to uncover the essence of life. It takes the lens through which we see the world and polishes it and refines it to its purest form so that we can see more clearly. We spend a lot of time skimming the surface of life. But poetry helps us to slow down and explore the depths. This is one that I'd love to break down more in a future episode. But isn't it fascinating how in the Hebrew creation story, which we find in the book of Genesis, God speaks creation into being. God doesn't zap the universe into existence. This is a God who uses words to create worlds. Creation itself is a divine poem. Words create worlds. The prophets, channeling the voice of the divine, sought to use their words to create a world free from injustice. One of the key prophets was called Isaiah, who was active in the southern kingdom of Judah in about 690 BC. Even though the original poetry would have been in ancient Hebrew, plenty of the force of it still comes across in the English. This is a passage found early on in his writings. So according to Isaiah, this is the voice of the divine speaking. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your religious festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. 
defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. This is the voice of God saying that all those rituals, all that religion is meaningless. More than that, it's detestable to God. Then there's the most extraordinary image. God says that religion has become a burden to him. Religion, a burden to God. God is fed up with the prayers and the festivals and the offerings. Why? Because injustice is being enacted in the land. Because the institutions that should be looking out for the people are looking out for themselves instead. Because they have blood on their hands. Because no one is defending the oppressed. Are you hearing this? A faith that does not make the pursuit of justice a priority is no faith at all. A faith that does not make the pursuit of justice a priority is no faith at all. God has had enough of the prosperous pious. So I was raised as a Christian. I grew up going to church, and that continued into my adult life. I value my faith now more than ever, but I'm finding myself increasingly uncomfortable in referring to myself as a Christian. Because like the prophets, I'm here looking at my faith tradition as an institution and thinking, you really don't get it, do you? All of that religion is worthless if you stay silent or tiptoe around issues such as race, misogyny, homophobia and injustice. The white evangelical church in the US elected and continues to support a misogynistic, egotistical, borderline fascist president who even as I say these words is stoking the fires of racism and violence in a country that he is meant to be leading. The white evangelical church is responsible for Trump. Let that sit with you for a bit. Let it make you as angry and as anguished as it should. And let's not pretend that this isn't an issue here in the UK. Racism is here in this country. Equality is here in this country. Injustice is here in this country. Now, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of churches, and I'm going to broaden this out beyond Christianity, plenty of faith groups who are doing incredible work. A lot of faith groups are fighting for justice and defending the oppressed and raising up those who have been brought low. You saw this in response to the Grenfell fire, where it was the mosques, the Sikh temples, the local churches who dropped everything to help. You see it in food banks, many of which are run by faith organisations. You see it in charities like Samaritans, who are doing such vital work around mental health and suicide. You've seen it in the response to the coronavirus pandemic, where behind the scenes, faith groups who without any fuss have been reaching out in practical ways 
to people who otherwise would be isolated and alone. I've heard a lot of church people in this country bemoan the fact that we live in a secular society. I guess what they mean is that Christianity as a religion used to be a focal point of life in the UK. A lot more people called themselves Christians. A lot more people went to church. Do we think that's what God is interested in? I think the prophets give a pretty clear answer to that. A Christian society, a society that follows in the footsteps of the prophets, wouldn't be a society that has a lot of Christians in it. A Christian society would be one where any form of inequality would be utterly unacceptable. A Christian society wouldn't be a society in which everyone went to church. It would be a society in which people look after one another with kindness and compassion. A Christian society would be a society in which the moment a person is thrown to the margins, a moment there is an act of injustice, the moment someone is killed because of the colour of their skin, the entire ground would begin to move and the air itself would shake because the people had risen up to make sure that nothing like that ever happened again. God does not want religion to be the focal point in society. God wants justice and compassion to be the focal point in society. The death of George Floyd has stirred something up. People are now speaking out. But where were our voices before? Like I said, this isn't a new issue. These killings have been going on a long time. Systemic racism and injustice have been going on a long time. If we go back to that passage from Isaiah, we see that passivity won't cut it. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Active verbs. It's not enough to just sit back and not be bad and do no evil and think, well, I'm not personally involved in this injustice, so I'm okay. No. We must do more than stop doing wrong. We must learn to do right and then do it. We must be anti-racist, anti-misogynist, anti-injustice, actively, deliberately, on purpose. If not, then we are not lined up with the will of God. In fact, we are against it. And that can be a hard thing to hear, and it challenges a lot of our cosy views. But unless we get uncomfortable, things are never going to change, and things need to change. Amos, a prophet who lived around a hundred years before Isaiah, puts it like this. Here's a brilliant little quote from his poetry that you might recognise. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. 
God is not interested in how beautiful our worship songs are. God cares about how we're treating the vulnerable people in society and how we're working to create greater equality. The image of the river that Amos uses is interesting, and that's why I picked it up for my poem. In Hebrew scripture and spirituality, rivers are incredibly significant, and there's a good geographical reason for this. Without the river Jordan, there would be no life in that region. This is true everywhere, but especially in a desert climate, rivers are vital to life. So when a poet from that culture is using the image of a river to describe justice, he's saying that without justice, life cannot flourish. Our humanity, our aliveness depends on justice. If we want to be more alive, we need to play our part in creating equal, just societies. So did the prophet's message sink in? Not really. Many of them were killed for challenging the authorities. There were certain kings who got it, but then they would die, and their successor would forget all about it, and so the cycle would start again. Ultimately, the doom that the prophets predicted should injustice continue to be ignored took place. The northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom was overrun by the Babylonians who took the people there into exile. They did eventually return, but then were conquered by the Greeks. And when they broke free from them, they were eventually conquered by the Romans. And it was under the Roman occupation that a rabbi called Jesus came along. And as a rabbi, Jesus would have been a student of the prophets. He would have immersed himself in their poetry. One of the key moments in Jesus's life came just as he was starting out on his ministry. He's just been baptized in the River Jordan, rivers, life, justice, and spent a bit of time hanging out in the desert. And now he's returned to his hometown to make his mission statement. This is the start of his movement. This is where he sets out his manifesto, a fundamental moment in a life that has been so fundamental to so many other lives. So he walks into the synagogue, listens for a while. Then he decides to speak up. He picks up the scroll of scripture then with all eyes on him, takes a moment to find the part he needs and reads it out. And what does he read? Poetry. He read a passage from the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Jesus took up the prophetic mantle. His manifesto was one of justice, of speaking truth to power, and he passed that on to his followers. That's the call. That's our mission today. 
Jesus and many of the other prophets were executed for telling the truth and challenging the authorities. But their words couldn't be killed. You can't kill poetry. Their words are still with us two and a half thousand years later, calling to us to take up the fight. Will we speak up? Or will we remain silent? There is hope. In another passage in Isaiah, he writes this. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. If. If we join together in this movement of indignation, this movement of anti-racism, this movement of justice, if we listen to the voices of the oppressed, if we listen to the cries for help, if we listen to the spirit of the divine that says, learn to do right and then do it, then there is hope. There's tons of things you can do if you want to respond practically to this. Just a quick search online will bring up loads of stuff. The onus is on all of us to start taking those steps. This podcast episode was one tiny thing I could do. And I know I have to do loads more. For those of us in the UK or elsewhere, I'd love to recommend a, a specific charity called the Stephen Lawrence Foundation, named after the black teenager who was murdered in a racially motivated attack in London in 1993. I'll put a link in the description of this podcast. This has been episode one. Black Lives Matter, Speaking Out Matters, Justice Matters. Shalom to you all.